This episode of the Power Connect podcast is brought to you by RS Metrics, providing asset level data for next level results. I'm grateful that Governor Schwarzenegger wrote a little blurb for the book, by the way. And uh, E2 and Governor Schwarzenegger have worked together for a long time in California when he was the governor for the state of California. And he signed into law the most ambitious and important climate policies this country has known. to the Power Connect Podcast. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode number three of the program happening right now, and we're glad to have you on board as we are each and every episode. The show continues to roll along, and look, we've got a handful of episodes that we're going to be uh, unveiling for you here in the next few weeks. Uh, we've got some great episodes planned as well. Jane Stricker, Ben Parvey, uh, Preston Oxter, and of course, we've got our girl Sonia Clayton that's going to be coming on the show as well. We've also got the Gridnecks folks that uh, we're going to be talking to from Clean Tech. So a lot of great episodes coming up, and of course, uh, we've got some series we're working on with our folks over at RS Metric. Shout out to my boy Manish Sagar, Desi, and the entire crew over there. Shout out to everybody over there for doing their thing at RS Metrics. And then, of course, over at Clean Techs, Melissa, Reina, the entire Clean Techs team. We're going to hear from Melissa on the next episode talking about what's been going on at Clean Techs uh, so far in the month of June. It has been a busy month, to say the least. And, of course, uh, a lot of stuff going on for the rest of the summer, the summer of Clean Techs, if you will. And, of course, uh, all of it you're going to hear play-by-play right here on the Power Connect podcast. But let's turn our attention to today's episode. Mr. Bob Keefe is our guest today. Bob and I sat down recently to talk about his brand new book, Climate Nomics. Bob is a longtime journalist, so a man after my own heart. He's also the executive director of E2, Environmental Entrepreneurs, a national nonpartisan group of business owners, investors, and professionals who leverage economic research and their business perspective to advance policies that are good for the environment and good for the economy. And Bob talks a little bit about that, but more importantly, we discuss all things climate nomics, where economics meet climate change. And uh, Bob's been working on this book for almost two years now. Obviously, we'll get into that. But the book also ta- talks about, you know, the impact of jobs uh, on as far as climate change and economics are concerned, uh, how it's affected investments, policy and how that's kind of stalled some things, both good and bad. And then, of course, uh, the damning effect that climate change is having on the military, something that a lot of folks really don't think about. But, you know, the one thing we did discuss is that for all these challenges that have been presented by climate change and, and how it intersects with economics is all the possibilities and opportunities that are now a possibility because of this new way of life in both uh, the energy world. So great episode today, Bob and I. And look, he's he's a North Carolina Tar Heel. I had to rib him about what went down in the national championship game. Had to throw a couple uh, basketball questions out there towards the end. And of course, uh, if you don't know, now you know. Rock Chalk, Jayhawk, all day, every day. But we'll save that for another podcast. So without further ado, please welcome to the program, author of Climate Nomics, Mr. Bob Keefe. You know, I spent uh, more than 20 years as a journalist covering everything from technology. I was a technology editor in Austin, Texas. I covered technology at a national level for the Cox newspaper chain. I covered Washington, the the White House and Congress for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I covered environmental issues. I remember going to Alaska and walking around the Tongass National Forest with a bunch of loggers one time and sitting around with them talking about spotted owls and, and dollars and cents that they were losing, frankly. But, you know, like any journalist, Fred, I saw that there was a story that wasn't being told out there. And that's the story of the economic cost of climate change, 
uh, and the economic benefits of climate action. I mean, last year alone, we had $150 billion worth of damage from uh, climate-related disasters in our country. Wildfires in the West, so many hurricanes in the East that we, that we lost, uh, we ran out of names for them. Yeah. Um, you know, flooding and droughts in our nation's heartland that today we're paying the price for uh, when it comes to everything from cornflakes to chicken. Um, the, those costs continue to rise. Those are just the direct costs, by the way. When we talk about homeowners insurance being up 40% uh, over the past 10 years, when we talk about the, the cost of uh, uh, crop insurance uh, going up by something like $30 billion over uh, 15 years time. Uh, those are those are the, the cost of rebuilding uh, military bases like Camp Lejeune in North Carolina and Tyndall in Florida and Ophid in Nebraska that got hammered by hurricanes and flooding in 2018, costing something along the lines of $10 billion worth of damage. Those are Those are costs that every taxpayer has to bear, me, you, and everybody else. And it's adding up, and we have to do something about it. What made you decide to make the pivot out of journalism full-time? And tell us a little bit about, you know, I know you've been with E2 for a few years. Who is E2? What do you all do? And kind of uh, how did they? How did that kind of parlay itself into the Climatonomics book? Yeah, yeah, well, thanks for that. I, you know, I made the pivot out of journalism because I kind of had felt like I did everything I wanted to do in journalism. Uh, and you wanted and to make I real done, money? Well, if I would if I would have thought that, I wouldn't have gone to a nonprofit. But. <laughs> Fair enough. But I did want to continue trying to do some public good, uh, which I felt like I was doing uh, as a journalist. And so why did I get into working at the intersection of climate and business and trying to do something about climate change? Three reasons. Delaney, Grace, and Carly. Those are my three daughters. Uh, and all of the daughters and sons that the rest of us have as well. And that sounds trite, but it's true. So, it, But I started working with E2 because I was really captivated by the idea and the importance of business voices to making change in this country. Most of my journalism career, I, I spent in covering business or technology or, or politics, and I knew that there's nothing that uh, lawmakers like more than talking about jobs, talking to business people, and pre-COVID kissing babies. Um, and when business people start talking about the impacts of climate change on their bottom lines, when they start talking about the number of jobs they can create in clean energy, for instance, with the right policies and the investments that they're making, whether it's building electric vehicles or putting up solar and wind, uh, that makes a difference with lawmakers. So E2 has been around for about 22 years now. Uh, we have about 11,000 members and supporters who are business people, not businesses, business people who work or do business in every state in the country. And what they understand is that the economy and the environment are not at odds, but actually they depend on each other. We can't have a good economy without a good environment, and we can't have a good environment without a good economy. And so our members, uh, we put them to work. We have them tell their stories to lawmakers in Washington and state houses around the country and talk about the economic, make the economic case for climate action. When did you start to, because you talked about, and you know, again, being a 20-year journalist, I know you're all, like you said, you're always thinking about stories and what's not being told and what is and how you can tell it in a different way. And so when did you start thinking about the Climatonomics book? What was the genesis of the, the idea for the book and how did it start to take shape? 
Well, I think it's really started to take shape when we looked at, when I looked around and saw what was happening. When I looked around and I saw California where I live on fire, when I would go back home to my home in North Carolina and we'd have hurricane after hurricane. When I talked to some of our members in the, in the Midwest who were struggling with what was the worst derecho our country has ever seen, the worst thunderstorm, most expensive thunderstorm we've ever seen in Iowa a couple of years ago that cost $7.5 billion worth of damage. But I knew that there, and, and it's pretty obvious now that there are two sides to this story. There are two sides to this coin. And to see the dramatic growth in solar and wind over the past 10 years or so, and the dramatic decline in the price of solar and wind over the past 10 years ago, it, it, it's obvious that something's afoot there. Solar and wind is now the cheapest power we can get anywhere. Look at what's happening with electric vehicles. You probably watched the Super Bowl as well when, when you had 13 car ads and 12 of them for, for EVs, and you have every single automaker, not just in America, but around the globe, switching to electric vehicles. There's a good story there. Well, we had our boy Arnold Schwarzenegger in an EV commercial, for crying out loud. Him and uh, our girl Salma Hayek. So, I mean, listen, you can never go wrong. You can never go wrong with Salma Hayek and Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> especially when you couple it with a uh, BMW EV commercial as well. Well, so, I'm grateful that uh, I'm grateful that Governor Schwarzenegger wrote a little blurb for the book, uh, by the way. And uh, E2 and Governor Schwarzenegger have worked together for a long time in California when he was the governor for the state of California, and he passed. The, and he signed into law the most ambitious and important climate policies this country has known. You know, I, I would argue, and look, I'm, a, I'm 41 years old, so I grew up on Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I am a firm believer that I don't know that Arnold gets enough credit for some of the work he did in the state of California. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right about that. You know, we passed the Global Warming Solutions Act, which is the, the cap and per trade program, essentially, for, for California or as he would say, California, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he paved the way uh, signing the California clean cars laws, for instance, that now get us, you know, back when we got, when E2 got started on this, actually, Fred, uh, our business people were working on passing those clean car standards. Uh, and of course the automakers and the petroleum industry was coming to California, coming to Sacramento and saying, Oh man, if you pass that stuff, it's going to, kill our businesses, it's going to ruin our economy, and we're going to go to hell in a handbasket. Well, our, our business people, our founders at E2 stood up mm -hmm. and started talking to lawmakers and saying, now, wait a minute, uh, if we pass these policies, um, you know, those, uh, those hybrid thingies that we've been talking about, again, this was 22 years ago, maybe those will become more commonplace. And who knows, maybe even electric vehicles someday could be possible. Um, uh, and we might not know the auto industry, but we know innovation, we know capital, and with the right market signals from government, uh, that can drive growth in these markets. And the, look what's happened to the hybrid vehicle market. Look what's happened to the EVs since then. That's because of California and Governor Schwarzenegger and Senator Fran Pavley. What is climatenomics? Climatenomics is the economics of climate change. And again, there's two sides to that. I, I am not an economist, I'll tell you that, but I spent a lot of years as a journalist covering the economy and covering businesses. Climatenomics is the economics of climate change. And again, it's, there are two sides to that. The costs that are battering our country and our wallets and our pocketbooks, 
and showing up on our tax bill increasingly every year. And it's the benefits of climate action and the 3 million jobs that we've created over the past 10 years uh, in clean energy now. It's the investments that are now pouring into smart companies, whether they're those EV makers that you talked about uh, or technologies that are continuing to bring down the price of solar and wind and making energy efficiency more available to people. And it's how, it's how Americans, Fred, are dealing with this. Look, we can continue to pay out the nose for these disasters. Uh, we can continue to watch our insurance rates go up, our homeowners insurance rates go up, or the cost of food go up when we have severe droughts year after year after year in California for 1,200 years, frankly. And, and we can continue to pay for that stuff, or we can start to invest in blunting those costs. And by invest, investing in those costs, we can drive a transformation in this economy like we've never seen before. What were some of the other things, though, that you uncovered in your book? And of course, I, and I also want to ask, too, how long did you, because it was extremely well-researched, kind of how long did it take you to you know, do all that research? But, more, but, but to that point, what were some <laughs> of the things that surprised you as, as to some of the costs that maybe you uncovered? I mean, let's start with the top lines. I mean, $150 billion worth of damage. That's not my number. That's NOAA's number, the National Oceana uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's number. $150 billion a year is a lot of money. Yeah, That's more than the gross state product of 17 states in this country. It's more money than Microsoft makes. It's more money than General Motors makes. In the past five years, Fred, we've had three of the most expensive wildfires in this country. We've had five of the most costly hurricanes in this country. This is just the past five years. We had, as you mentioned, the worst, most expensive freeze in Texas uh, that cost nearly $200 billion in property damage alone. Uh, and we mentioned the storm in Iowa that uh, Governor Kim Reynolds said uh, was simply inconceivable that cost the state of Iowa and Indiana $7.5 billion in damage from corn and other crops that were just decimated. Those were some of the biggest, the, the top line numbers that were just to me, we all knew it was happening, but that's a lot of money when you put it in perspective. But then when you drill down and you see where, where else we're paying for this, Fred, you know, again, homeowners insurance, uh, food prices, et cetera. But I, I grew up an Army brat in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and spent a lot of time on Army bases as a kid growing up. And I knew uh, what Camp Lejeune was like in North Carolina. I didn't know how much damage that they suffered there in 2018 with back-to-back 100-year -back floods mm -hmm. and hurricanes. Yeah. 100% of non-military buildings were flooded in that base. 85, I think, 85, it's in the book, 85% of all housing units were flooded in that base. A couple of weeks later, we had the storm that hit uh, Tyndall Air Force Base, or right, right around the time, same time in Florida. Wiped out, if you remember, uh, a, a little town called Mexico Beach, and, and just hammered uh, the, the home of one of the most important fighter wings in our nation's arsenal, if you will, did even more damage than Fort Lauderdale, uh, than uh, Camp Lejeune. Wiped out a couple of F-22 Raptors, which are the world's most expensive airplanes at $350 million a piece. And then not too long after that, we had OFIT Air Force Base in Nebraska, home of the doomsday plane, the planes that are supposed to fly the president and the White House uh, in a in the event of nuclear or other war. Those planes couldn't get off of the ground because of flooding in Ophir. 
and Ophid in Nebraska are still cleaning up from that storm. And that's not the military paying for that. That's not some somebody else paying for that. That's me and you. That's taxpayers that have to pay to clean that up. Uh, Naval Station Norfolk. And if, if you are in the Navy, you know that's the world's biggest military installation. And it's base. sinking. They're, they're facing flooding uh, at Norfolk so badly that they have to plan church services around the tide tables. Uh, while the rest of America's property, the price of housing and their, their home values have skyrocketed. It's going down in places like Hampton Roads because of the flooding. Now, and, and, the, and the Navy, by the way, is spending millions and millions of dollars every single year just shoring up piers and other things just so they can get those ships in and out yeah. of Norfolk. Now, what happens, Fred, if we have to pick up the world's biggest military installation and move it inland because of flooding? The, the Navy doesn't can't even conceive. Nobody can conceive of what that would cost because something like that has never been done. But that's what we're facing because of climate change are these astronomical costs that we're only just starting to, to feel, unfortunately. Look at what's happening in Miami. They're having to move roads and elevate roads all over the city because they flood too often. Yeah, That's a lot of money, and that's taxpayer money. Well, we don't want to get too negative for this podcast, so let's. Uh, but but I think I'll tell you what, and and that's all. These are all fantastic items, fantastic in the sense of the breadth of, of work that you did that are covered in the climate nomics book. So let's go ahead and pivot real quick to some of the. And, and again, for every flip side of the coin, as you allude to, you know, those are that that's that those are the issues that are facing us. But let's look right. at some of the opportunities now that are being presented of it, because again, we wouldn't be doing our due diligence, and again, it wouldn't be as well written of a book as it is if, if you didn't present both sides of the coin. So tell the, little, the folks at home a little bit about what are some of the opportunities now that are burgeoning and that are being presented as a result of climate change that, you know, we need to start acting on now if we're going to fix the problems that you just laid out. Absolutely. And there's and I love talking about the good stuff. So thanks for too, right? me, there, there's plenty of good stuff. But here's the most important opportunity that we have. We, we have the opportunity to take action to blunt some of these costs that we've been talking about. Right now, as we speak, there's a, there's legislation sitting in the Senate. It's been sitting there since September that would start to invest in clean energy and climate solutions, $550 billion that has been languishing while we continue to deal with some of these costs. We need to get that passed for starters. And here's why we need to get that passed. So my organization, E2, has been tracking clean energy job growth around the country now for uh, more than a decade. What we know now is that there are about 3 million people that work in clean energy. That's, yes, solar and wind installers, but it's also energy efficiency folks that are making our schools and our offices and our homes more efficient, whether it's with LED lighting or Energy Star appliances or just some good old cock and better windows. Those numbers are increasing dramatically with the growth in electric vehicles that we've all uh, witnessed uh, over the past few months. Now, what caused that job growth? Uh, what caused that job growth uh, in large part were a number of factors, but one of them was the, the 2009 passage of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, presided over by a guy named Joe Biden. Then Vice President Biden oversaw uh, the equivalent of about $90 billion in clean energy investments. That's a lot of money. That's taxpayer money too. But what did we get out of that? 
we got about 100,000 solar and wind projects all around the country. We weatherized something like a million homes, uh, which made the monthly power bill a little bit better for uh, people who have to pay their power bills. Uh, and it, we invested in research and development that drive the cost of solar and wind down 90% uh, almost over the past uh, decade or so. And in turn, that helped drive that job growth that we were talking about, that three, three, million, three million jobs uh, around the country. So with the right policies, I know that we can create jobs, we can drive economic growth, and we can start to blunt these costs that are adding up. That's the good side of the coin. Well, not to mention, too, and I know I saw a stat, uh, an article that was written not too long ago about how, you know, we're looking at probably another, what, 10 to 13 million clean energy jobs that are going to be added or created as a result of, right. of all the policies. And so you're exactly right. I mean, we're going to be looking at a huge workforce here. I guess my question for you is, and, and you know, some of the conferences I've attended, you know, everybody talks about the workforce and we're, you know, we're kind of in this, you know, we were in the Great Resignation. It's kind of we're somewhere in the middle of it, I yeah. guess. Are you optimistic, encouraged, concerned from your research and from the folks you talk to that will be able to meet those needs? In terms of numbers of workers. In, 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 for, in terms of, because that's the one thing when we hear, when I hear these CEOs talking from both right. electric power, clean, whatever, clean tech, whatever side of the, the coin they're on, is that that's the number, that's one of the larger concerns is, yes, we've got these grand ambitions, we've got these goals to get this stuff done, we know what's in front of us, but are we going to have the manpower to do it? You're, you're exactly right. And the answer right now is no. We also need to invest in training programs, uh, whether it's at the community college level or, or other levels for, for people to be able to access these jobs. And by the way, we need to make them available to more people and to more communities. My organization, along with some others, a, a year or so ago did a study essentially on diversity and clean energy diversity and clean energy jobs. And what we found is that clean energy has a diversity problem. It's uh, probably a 75%, 80% white males that are in clean energy. While women make up 50% of the, almost 50% of the entire U.S. workforce, they make up something like 20% of the clean energy workforce. Blacks and African-Americans make up something like 12 or 13% of the overall workforce. In clean energy, it's something like 8% or less. You know, the, the other good news about investing in clean energy uh, around the country and into the companies and the factories that are building that is that we can choose where that goes. It's not tied to geology or geography like something like the oil or gas industry or the coal industry is. These jobs can happen everywhere and, and they're open to people from, for, from every walk of life. So yes, we need to, we need to invest in training programs uh, and the, the, if we do that, we're going to create jobs that, as my organization have found, uh, typically pay about 25% better than the national median wage uh, for clean energy jobs. And those are who, who doesn't want a 25% raise? I know I could certainly take one right now. Let me ask you this. Um... Folks I've talked to in the past, one of the things, and, and, and again, you, you, you highlighted it in, uh, in, in your book, talked about how in 2020 we saw a lot of money, you know, investment dollars leaving the oil and gas sector and now, you know, going into the clean energy side of things. And, and we saw more money, what, I think you said than in, in that year, did what, doubled than in like the last five, That's 10 right. years previously. Are you worried, though, that it's being deployed haphazardly? 
Well, I think whenever you have a technology transition like this, um, there's going to be early money that is deployed haphazardly, as you say. You know, look at the dot-com boom and bust. Look at some of the early stages. Look at some of the early stages of clean energy. Uh, we had folks investing in, in this stuff before it was before it was ready for prime time. One of those people was sitting on the in the house I can see from my hotel room here, the White House. Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House, if you remember, in the 70s. Great idea, but it wasn't ready for prime time. The difference now, Fred, is that the technology is there. Solar and wind technology is solid, and it's the reason that prices are coming down. Electric vehicle technology is solid, and it's the reason prices are starting to inch down. Uh, battery technology is there. Certainly, energy efficiency technology is there. Uh, this is a, a, a an industry sector that is ready to roar. We've been barking. It's been barking for a while. Now it's ready to roar. But part of the, it, it yes, and, and investment counts, but so does policy. We've got a great member in, in Los Angeles, a young woman who's the CEO of a, a car charging company. Uh, she's done fantastic. She's had fantastic growth throughout the state of California. Now she wants to raise money to expand into other parts of the country. Well, there's so much uncertainty around this budget reconciliation bill and the federal policy in Washington, that investors aren't exactly sure what to do. Uh, they don't know where to put their money. They don't know whether to invest in that or what's going to happen if somebody else comes into the White House and decides we want to run the country on coal again. We need some certainty from our policymakers in Washington and the states, and that will drive the investments to the right spots. What role does and can oil and gas companies play in this energy transition? They can play a huge role there because let's call them oil and gas companies, but let's call them what they are, energy companies. Absolutely. And we're talking about a transformation of the energy industry. And why shouldn't the energy industry be leading that transformation? Yes, it's great that we have so many entrepreneurs and smaller companies that are moving into to clean energy and leading the way in clean energy. And yes, it's because of innovation and entrepreneurs that we have Tesla and uh, the the uh, which drove the rest of the auto industry to wake up and 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 finally uh, uh, get moving in the right direction. But just like those auto industries, uh, auto companies should have been leading the transition to electric vehicles. Oil and gas companies should have been leading the transition to to cleaner energy. Mm -hmm. They still can. They still should. Uh, and increasingly, as you'll read in the book shareholders and investors want them to do that absolutely and the companies that don't are going are going to be left behind a how long did it take because like you said you said you've done some on the you know you've been a part of books but this is the first time we've seen you know bob keith uh slapped across right. the marquee so congratulations to you for that because i know that's a labor Thank of love you. absolutely absolutely uh a just tell us a little bit of the process uh again for a guy that's been doing this for a long time to and again you've got three kids so i guess this is kind of going to be like kind of like the fourth one in a way um a little bit about the process of putting this book together <laughs> and finally seeing bob by bob keith because look we all know we love to see that byline but it's got to feel a little bit different when it's on the cover of a book. Well, you're kind to say so, and thank you for that. You know, I, I started working on this probably over the course of a year and a half or so ago, maybe a little bit longer, and I made the point to take about a, a six-week sabbatical to work on this. 
which turned into a three-week sabbatical to work on this because the reconciliation bill and the, and the Build Back Better bill in Congress started heating up right when I started carving out time to do this. So it's a lot of nights and weekends, and it's a lot of days, you know, doing my day job, talking to business people who are changing the world, talking to lawmakers who can change the world and should be changing the world, and watching the news unfold around us on a daily basis about uh, uh, both the, the economic impacts of climate change and the growth and the fantastic um, opportunities that are developing as we transition to a cleaner economy. Favorite part about writing the book? Hardest part about writing the book? Well, anybody who writes a book will tell you that writing the book is the easy part. Getting it published is the harder part. Anybody who has either made a living or wanted to make a living stringing words together like you and I did realizes the the joy in being able to just carve out the time and actually do what we want to do, which is write. But it's really about telling the story that that I don't think was being told, Fred. And hopefully with Climate Nomics, we've done a little bit of that. Best feedback from the book has been? Oh, I've had several people tell me, wow, I didn't know about that. Or, wow, that's I, I never saw that stat before. Or, wow, I really like that name, even if I can't pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> what have your daughter said about the book? Uh, what have my daughter said about the book? They... <laughs> <laughs> my youngest daughter said, how come I'm not in the book more? Uh, and I said, leave oh, it to I'm the youngest that. to say that. Leave it to the that's youngest. Right. That, that's right. She said, oh, how come my name's not in there more? I really enjoyed at the end of the book when, when you uh, uh, kind of talked about what we know and what we don't know, kind of just some bullet point uh, uh, mm -hmm. little facets about the book, which I certainly enjoyed. But um, kind of dovetail or kind of just branched away a little bit from the climate side of things, though. But you talked about when you had a chance to sit down with Jeff Bezos, when you sat down yeah. with, with uh, um, Steve Jobs and they talked about, right. you know, kind of their visions years ago before, you know, the Amazons and the Apples that you and I and everybody right. else knows today. Can you explain or, or, or describe kind of when those guys were talking about what their visions were? Right. And now that we know that it's come to fruition, but tell us a little bit about when you're in that moment with the Jeff Bezos, who's telling you that Amazon's going to be more than just a book company when it's all said and done. Right. What was his conviction like? And when Steve Jobs tells you you're going to be able to take pictures, talk on the phone, basically do everything from an iPhone, <laughs> and this was 20, 25 right. years ago. When you're talking to two who the greatest visionaries of our lifetime before, they're, before they were who they were, what was that like? Well, thanks for bringing that up. And, and I, I like that part of the book as well. And it's come up a lot since then, because a lot of people have said to me, he's like, yeah, Bob, this solar stuff is great. And sure, these electric vehicles are wonderful. And we don't want one of those. And this would be great. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in our lifetimes. And it harkened me back to the things that you're talking about, sitting in a room with uh, other reporters and Steve Jobs and him saying, Someday you're going to have a thousand songs in your pocket. And all of us are looking at each other saying, what the hell is he talking about? Or someday you're actually going to take pictures with your cell phone. And nobody had ever taken a picture with a cell phone. Or literally walking in the Amazon headquarters in uh, Seattle, back when Amazon was struggling. Uh, and 
uh, struggling as a as a purveyor of books and Jeff Bezos saying, yeah, you're going to buy everything from dog food to to anything else you can buy at the store on my online outlet someday. And all of us writing that down as reporters and saying, yeah, OK, sure, whatever. But think about or the Google guys. I'll give you one more story. I remember meeting with Sergey Brin. He came rolling in on a Segway, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Uh, to, to our meeting. And, and this was before Google went public or anything else. And they were still trying to figure out what a lot of people were figuring out, trying to figure out what the heck they do. There was a search engine thing, but nobody knew what it was. And, and Sergey told me that um, you're going to be able to go on our website someday and find every book, every piece of art that's ever been made and anything else you want on the internet. And, you know, back then uh, we were lucky enough to have internet at speeds that we could look for anything. There was some skepticism there. But uh, Fred, look at how quickly, relatively quickly, those things have changed our lives. Look how quickly that the technology has impacted the world uh, for, for better and worse. And then think about where we are with the technology with PV and solar and wind and electric vehicles. Two years ago, you and I would be talking about EVs and it'd still be a pipe dream. Uh, now every auto manufacturer in, in America and around the world is shifting to EVs while the price of gasoline is up to six or $7 in some parts of the country. So the technology is there now and that's a good thing. And it's one of the things that gives me hope that just like I have more than a thousand songs in my pocket now and I take pictures every day on my cell phone we can transition to a cleaner economy. Real quick on that point, you're one of those few people in this world, really, that's had a chance to really be in the the the, the area and the the vibe and the spirit of a, of us jobs and a, and those guys in the early stages. Right. We know that those are different kind of dudes, so we'll, let's just call that what it is. But do you have you met anybody in this space that harkens to kind of those guys and 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 that early kind of entrepreneurship slash you know we're going to get this done come hell or high water and I don't care how insane or radical you think this idea is? Yeah, actually, uh, one of them wrote the foreword for the book, Tom Steyer. Okay. Tom's done a lot of good in the world in in a lot of ways, and he's raised a lot of money and and did pretty pretty well in the venture capital business. His new company called Galvanize Climate Solutions is focused specifically on investing in clean energy and climate solutions, as the name says, um, but, also, but not just throwing money at the problem, and, and money is always an issue, but Tom, for instance, is, is visionary enough to know that we need to change the policies to make these companies work and to see the types of change that we all want and we all talk about, but isn't getting done yet. You know, another person that I, I mentioned in the book is uh, an investor named Chris Saka. Chris oh, yeah. used to be a Shark Tank guy, you know, very successful venture capitalist, moved into basically a couple years ago, decided to put all of his money into climate solutions, a company called uh, Lower Carbon Capital. Uh, and he's just investing in some fascinating stuff. Uh, all across the gamut of climate and clean energy. So those types of visionaries, but it's not just that. It's 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 the people who are managing a lot of the, the funds now. We've got a great uh, E2 member in Asheville, North Carolina, Pete Kroll, who has a, a fund called Earth Equity Investments, I believe it is. But he basically 
uh, helps channel investors into companies that are making a difference in the world. So there's that desire there and there there's the, vi the visionaries, as you mentioned, just in different forms that fortunately are at the forefront of this as well. All right. Final two part question. One in this first answer, this first question has uh, only one. Right Is it going to be about college basketball? Boy, Bob, I tell you what, <laughs> you, you, you know, it's like we've known each other for a while and we've only literally known each other for an hour. Uh, so, yes, two part question. First question. And there's only one right answer. Uh, the greatest Tar Heel of all time is, <laughs> and then two, two, what's next on the docket for Bob Keefe and where can they find Climatenomics? Well, the, the first question is easy. We, we all know it's Michael Jordan. Just making sure, just making sure. Uh, hey, <laughs> is, is the greatest player. And Dean Smith, of course, is the greatest coach. Uh, Kansan, by heart, Absolutely. as you know. So that, that's the easy question. What's next on the docket for, for me is hopefully getting this word out, not just about the book, but about the message of the book. And thanks to you and others who do the jobs that you do to, to help get that message out, because it's an important one. And I hope and think that once people start to realize that climate change is a pocketbook issue, both one that's draining the, the change out of our pocket and, and one side of our pants, but also potentially putting money in the other pocket, things will change. And people will realize that we can save the planet and save our economy as well. We, been, we already mentioned uh, your BFF, Jeff Bezos's website. So I'm guessing that this book <laughs> is available on his site. It, it is available on his site. He's definitely not uh, a BFF. And he doesn't, <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't remember me, but like most Americans, I've sent them a lot of money on Amazon over the years. I was going to say, between you, your wife, and your kids, I'm sure, uh, you, you, you know, Jeff Bezos was uh, very clairvoyant. And, and so, uh, right. no, Climatenomics, I'll tell you what, and again, I, I, I've, I've been fascinated by what I've read so far because, again, coming from a true journalist, you can certainly tell uh, your style, and I certainly appreciate it because it's a very conversational, easy book to read, and the, the information is invaluable. So, Mr. Keefe, I can't thank, thank you, you enough for your time, and uh, we're Let's do this again real soon in the next few months and uh, kind of find out what's up with Climatenomics, how things have been going, and uh, you know when Climatenomics 2 is going to come out. I'd love to do it anytime you'd like, Fred, and thank you again for having me and for really all that you're doing. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Bob Keefe. You can catch all of the Power Connect podcasts over at powerconnect.net, over at Apple, Spotify, uh, and then, of course, give us a five-star rating over at Apple. Why? Because I think we do a pretty dadgum good job, if I do say so myself. And as I alluded to before the show, we've got a lot of good episodes coming up, so stick around for that, as always. Shout-out, as always, to the entire Power Connect team, which is, well, yours truly. Uh, all the audience, all the guests, clean text folks, RS Metrics, you guys know who you are. This has been the Power Connect Podcast, connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time. The world won't get no better if we just.